Jane Austen's Emma, Volume 3, Part 6, Chapters 16 through 19. This will cover the last four chapters of the novel, but there will be one more podcast following this one that will cover some of the major themes and motifs of the novel, as well as its overall structure. Chapter 16 opens with the line, It was a very great relief to Emma to find Harriet as desirous as herself to avoid a meeting. Their intercourse was painful enough by letter. How much worse had they been obliged to meet? End quote. In fact, Harriet has reason to go off to London for there was a tooth amiss, as the narrator puts it, and she needs to consult a dentist. Emma takes this opportunity to send Harriet to her sister, Mrs. John Knightley, who is delighted to have Harriet with her in London. Emma goes to visit Jane Fairfax at her aunt's, and this time there is no such awkwardness or bustle as before. Emma is invited in immediately, only to find Mrs. Bates and Mrs. Elton there together as Miss Bates is out. Mrs. Elton is her usual self, somewhat obnoxious, and quotes some poetry rather inappropriately. The lines are, For when a lady's in the case, you know all other things give place. This is from a poem by John Gay, The Hair and Many Friends, and apparently it's a poem often memorized by young people, but here the context, which Mrs. Elton evidently forgets, is a bull seeing a cow. So, once again, Mrs. Elton is putting on airs by quoting poetry, but she usually forgets the context of the poetry that she quotes. It becomes apparent to Emma that Mrs. Elton believes she is the only person in on the secret engagement between Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill, and she is making broad hints to this effect in her conversation with Jane, assuming that Emma doesn't know what is going on. But of course, Emma does. For example, she mentions how much better Jane seems to look and says things like, Do not you think, Miss Woodhouse, our saucy little friend here is charmingly recovered? Do not you think her cure does parry the highest credit? Here was a side glance of great meaning at Jane. Upon my word, Perry has restored her in a wonderful short time. Oh, if you had seen her as I did when she was at the worst. And when Mrs. Bates was saying something to Emma, whispered farther, We do not say a word of any assistance that Perry might have. Not a word of a certain young physician from Windsor. Oh, no, Perry shall have all the credit. End quote. When Emma takes her leave, Jane Fairfax follows her out and apologizes for the awkwardness and secrecy of the engagement. When Emma assures her that no apologies are necessary, Jane says, You are very kind, but I know what my manners were to you, so cold and artificial. I had always a part to act. It was a life of deceit. I know that I must have disgusted you. And Emma replies, Pray, say no more. I feel that all the apologies should be on my side. Let us forgive each other at once. So we see here that Jane and Emma are reconciled with each other at last. There will need to be at least three months of deep mourning for Mrs. Churchill, after which Jane and Frank will be free to marry. 
In chapter 17, we learn that Mrs. Weston has given birth to a little girl, and both mother and child are well and safe. The narrator comments that Mr. Weston will have his fireside enlivened by the sports and the nonsense, the freaks and the fancies of a child never banished from home, end quote. This refers to the fact that a girl was usually educated at home, whereas a boy would have been sent to boarding school. Everyone is discussing little Adelaide, and in a conversation with Emma, Mr. Knightley says, somewhat whimsically, She will be disagreeable in infancy and correct herself as she grows older. I am losing all my bitterness against spoilt children, my dearest Emma. I, who am owing all my happiness to you, would not it be horrible ingratitude in me to be severe on them? Emma laughed and replied, but I had the assistance of all your endeavors to counteract the indulgence of other people. I doubt whether my own sense would have corrected me without it. Do you? I have no doubt. Nature gave you understanding. Miss Taylor gave you principles. You must have done well. My interference was quite as likely to do harm as good. It was very natural for you to say, what right has he to lecture me? And I am afraid very natural for you to feel that it was done in a disagreeable manner. I do not believe I did you any good. The good was all to myself by making you an object of the tenderest affections to me. I could not think about you so much without doting on you, faults and all, and by dint of fancying so many errors, have been in love with you ever since you were 13, at least, end quote. Remember that Mr. Knightley is about 16 years older than Emma because he mentions having held her as a baby when he was 16, and here he admits, whether honestly or playfully, that he has been in love with her for quite some time. They go on to talk about names, and Mr. Knightley comments, Mr. Knightley, you always called me Mr. Knightley, and from habit it was not so very formal a sound, and yet it is formal. I want you to call me something else, but I do not know what. I remember once calling you George in one of my amiable fits about ten years ago. I did it because I thought it would offend you, but as you made no objection, I never did it again. And cannot you call me George now? Impossible. I never can call you anything but Mr. Knightley. I will not promise even to equal the elegant terseness of Mrs. Elton by calling you Mr. K, but I will promise, she added presently, laughing and blushing, I will promise to call you once by your Christian name. I do not say when, but perhaps you may guess where, in the building in which N takes M, for better, for worse, end quote. This is a reference to the Anglican Church service from the Book of Common Prayer, in which the passage is written with N and M, representing the names of the bride and groom, respectively. It is necessary to break the news of their engagement to Emma's father. You might recall that Mr. Woodhouse does not take change very well, especially when it involves marriage. They try to lead up to it gradually, but despite their efforts, Quote, poor man, it was at first a considerable shock to him, and he tried earnestly to dissuade her from it. She was reminded more than once of having always said she would never marry, and assured that it would be 
a great deal better for her to remain single and told of poor Isabella and poor Miss Taylor, but it would not do. Emma hung about him affectionately and smiled and said it must be so, and that he must not class her with Isabella and Mrs. Weston, whose marriages taking them from Hartfield had indeed made a melancholy change, but she was not going from Hartfield. She should be always there. She was introducing no change in their numbers or their comforts, but for the better, and she was very sure that he would be a great deal the happier for having Mr. Knightley always at hand when he were once got used to the idea. Did he not love Mr. Knightley very much? He would not deny that he did, she was sure. Whom did he ever want to consult on business but Mr. Knightley? Who was so useful to him? Who so ready to write his letters? Who so glad to assist him? Who so cheerful, so attentive, so attached to him? Would not he like to have him always on the spot? Yes, that was all very true. Mr. Knightley could not be there too often. He should be glad to see him every day. But they did see him every day as it was. Why could not they go on as they had done? End quote. Once again, we see Mr. Woodhouse in an almost childlike light, but the narrator goes on to say, Mr. Woodhouse could not be soon reconciled, but the worst was overcome. The idea was given. Time and continual repetition must do the rest. Now that they have broken the news to Emma's father, they can tell others. The word soon spreads quickly throughout the community, as such news always does. Quote, in general, it was a very well-approved match. Some might think him and others might think her the most in luck. But yet, upon the whole, there was no serious objection raised except in one habitation, the vicarage. There, the surprise was not softened by any satisfaction. Mr. Elton cared little about it compared with his wife. He only hoped... The young lady's pride would now be contented, and supposed she had always meant to catch Knightley if she could. But Mrs. Elton was very much discomposed indeed. Poor Knightley! Poor fellow! Sad business for him! She was extremely concerned, for, though very eccentric, he had a thousand good qualities. How could he be so taken in? Poor Knightley! There would be an end of all pleasant intercourse with him, how happy he had been to come and dine with them whenever they asked him. But that would all be over now. Poor fellow, no more exploring parties to Donwell made for her. Oh, no, there would be a Mrs. Knightley to throw cold water on everything. Extremely disagreeable. Shocking plan, living together. It would never do. She knew a family near Maple Grove who had tried it and had been obliged to separate before the end of the first quarter, end quote. In chapter 18, more of the loose ends begin to be tied up, which helps to explain why the novel goes on for a number of chapters after the major events have been settled. News arrives that Harriet Smith is going to marry Mr. Robert Martin. Mr. Knightley is at first concerned that Emma will not approve, but the two seem to have finally been reconciled in the matter of Harriet Smith. Both appear to have given a little in this, because Emma says, You need not be at any pains to reconcile me to the match. I think Harriet is doing extremely well. Her connections 
may be worse than his. In respectability of character, there can be no doubt that they are. I have been silent from surprise merely, excessive surprise. You cannot imagine how suddenly it has come on me, how peculiarly unprepared I was. For I had reason to believe her very lately more determined against him, much more than she was before. You ought to know your friend best, replied Mr. Knightley, but I should say that she was a good-tempered, soft-hearted girl, not likely to be very, very determined against any young man who told her he loved her, end quote. Both grant each other some concessions. Emma acknowledges that she has acted foolishly in her matchmaking, and Mr. Knightley in turn acknowledges that he has misjudged Harriet Smith. I am now very willing to grant you all Harriet's good qualities. I am convinced of her being an artless, amiable girl with very good notions, very seriously good principles, and placing her happiness in the affections and utility of domestic life. Much of this, I have no doubt, she may thank you for. So Mr. Knightley gives Emma some credit for some of these good qualities in Harriet. Emma and her father soon pay a visit to Randall's to visit Mrs. Weston and the baby, and there they encounter Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. Frank is now a changed man with their engagement out in the open. He says, is not she looking well, better than she ever used to do? You see how my father and Mrs. Weston dote upon her. Later on, he praises her complexion. Did you ever see such a skin, such smoothness, such delicacy, and yet without being actually fair? One cannot call her fair. It is a most uncommon complexion, with her dark eyelashes and hair, a most distinguishing complexion, so peculiarly the lady in it, just color enough for beauty. I have always admired her complexion, replied Emma archly, but do not I remember the time when you found fault with her for being so pale, when we first began to talk of her? Have you quite forgotten? To this, Frank confesses good-naturedly to having been an impudent dog. The two even joke about Mr. Perry setting up his carriage. Chapter 19 is a very brief chapter and is the final chapter of the novel. One more loose thread is tied up. Quote, Harriet's parentage became known. She proved to be the daughter of a tradesman, rich enough to afford her the comfortable maintenance which had ever been hers, and decent enough to have always wished for concealment. Such was the blood of gentility which Emma had formerly been so ready to vouch for. It was likely to be untainted, perhaps, as the blood of many a gentleman." But what a connection had she been preparing for Mr. Knightley, or for the Churchills, or even for Mr. Elton. The stain of illegitimacy, unbleached by nobility or wealth, would have been a stain indeed. No objection was raised on the father's side. The young man was treated liberally. It was all as it should be, and as Emma became acquainted with Robert Martin, who was now introduced at Hartfield, she fully acknowledged in him all the appearance of sense and worth which could bid fairest for her little friend. End quote. And now that Harriet is engaged, quote, Harriet, necessarily drawn away by her engagements with the Martins, was less and less at Hartfield, which was not to be regretted. The intimacy between her and Emma must sink. Their friendship must change into a calmer, 
sort of goodwill, and fortunately what ought to be and must be seemed already beginning, and in the most gradual, natural manner." So the concern that Emma had expressed earlier to Harriet, that their friendship could not be as close if she were to marry Robert Martin because of the class difference, will now come to pass, but neither side regrets the change. Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill are to be married in November, and before that, Emma and Mr. Knightley are married, and they plan to spend their honeymoon of a fortnight or two weeks at the seaside. You may recall from earlier in the novel that Emma has never seen the ocean, so this will be a new place for her. One more comment about Mr. Woodhouse, who was quite concerned about his daughter's marriage. But there is another event that drives away his fears. Quote, Mrs. Weston's poultry house was robbed one night of all her turkeys, evidently by the ingenuity of man. Other poultry yards in the neighborhood also suffered. Pilfering was housebreaking to Mr. Woodhouse's fears. He was very uneasy, and but for the sense of his son-in-law's protection, would have been under wretched alarm every night of his life. The strength resolution, and presence of mind of the Mr. Knightleys commanded his fullest dependence. While either of them protected him and his, Hartfield was safe, but Mr. John Knightley must be in London again by the end of the first week in November. The result of this distress was that, with a much more voluntary, cheerful consent than his daughter had ever presumed to hope for at the moment, she was able to fix her wedding day, and Mr. Elton was called upon, within a month from the marriage of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Martin, to join the hands of Mr. Knightley and Miss Woodhouse. The wedding was very much like other weddings, where the parties have no taste for finery or parade, and Mrs. Elton, from the particulars detailed by her husband, thought it all extremely shabby and very inferior to her own. Very little white satin, very few lace veils, a most pitiful business. Selina would stare when she heard of it. But in spite of these deficiencies, the wishes, the hopes, the confidence, the predictions of the small band of true friends who witnessed the ceremony were fully answered in the perfect happiness of the union." So, in the final paragraph, Jane Austen playfully gives us Mrs. Elton one more time to express her disappointment with the wedding, which does not match her expectations, but Austen balances this bit of humor with the expression of the perfect happiness of the union.